we have so much more in common across countries and cultures and languages than we have different. But so many people are unaware of that or don't want to hear that. I still have the idealistic perspective that we can all really unite, like that potential is there. And yet I'm also really aware of all the obstacles. As an undergraduate advisor and area coordinator in the residence halls, Miriam Kia Keating was helping students find their voice and build supportive communities. When she moved into a career in clinical psychology, her focus didn't waver. She honed those skills in her community-based participatory research, mostly with refugee communities and young people, and found vulnerabilities and strengths that she knew, from experience, were there all along. Find out how giving people voice and understanding their resilience can be key to strengthening community on today's Roads Taken with me, Leslie Jennings Rowley. Today, I'm here with Miriam Kia Keating, and we are going to talk about having rich inner lives and outer lives and where that takes us. So, Miriam, thank you so much for being here and welcome. Thank you so much for having me. So, I start these conversations each time with the same two questions, and they are When we were in college, who were you? And when we were getting ready to leave, who did you think you would become? In college, I guess I started out very idealistic and excited, so excited to be at Dartmouth. I had only visited one time before I got to campus, and it had been two summers before starting at Dartmouth. And so I visited when it was green and lush and beautiful and warm. And so I think I didn't quite have a full understanding of the drastic cold that I was going (laughs) to encounter. And it really, really impacted me so much more than I ever realized, especially in January. So I would go home in December And when I would come back in January, I was coming from Hawaii and I would be going, you know, into 88 degrees tropical weather. And then in January, I would return to sometimes zero degrees Arctic weather (laughs) and I would seriously be cold for maybe two weeks straight and not be able to warm up. My body was just in shock. And I just, I knew of course that I was going to New Hampshire. I knew it was going to be colder, but I think I bought like the only wool jacket on the (laughs) island on my Dartmouth. And then my first year, everybody just kept handing me the right thing to wear because they were like, what? You're hopelessly unprepared. (laughs) (laughs) So I really had no idea what I was getting into, but I loved being there. And part of that kind of journey that I took every year, at least once or maybe a few times a year going back and forth, really impacted me in terms of being very aware of what it took to get there. And so even though I had many friends who were from the Northeast that I was jealous of because they could just jump in a car and drive home. I also knew there were people from all over the world who had come to Dartmouth. And so really from all four years, I was just very invested and felt very responsible in trying to do my part to create a sense of community, make people feel that they belonged, give people a voice, a place to feel connected and to find their social circle. So in my sophomore and senior years, I worked in residential life and I was an undergraduate advisor in my sophomore year. And then I was the area coordinator both times. At the time, we called them the new dorms, but they were the 
they were not they're not new anymore <laughs> i'm not really sure if they were um, new when we were there <laughs> they, so the east wheelock cluster and you know i just spent a lot of my extra time thinking about how to support others and create that kind of home away from home. So I had that idealism that I mentioned, but I also, because of those kinds of activities, as well as things like being a sexual assault peer advisor and sitting on the committee on standards in my senior year, which was an honor to be to be appointed to the committee on standards, but I was also seeing kind of the dark side of the struggles and suffering that my peers were sometimes going through in terms of mental health. Um, and the committee on standards was when people are violating the honor code, or they were either sitting there during a case talking about either accusing somebody or being the accused for an assault. I mean, it was pretty intense stuff. So while I maintained my idealism and hope that there was a way that we could create and support and continue to support uh, that sense of community and connection, I also had that reality check of the fact that behind the curtain, not that far behind, there there's a lot of struggle going on and that that was something we needed to attend to as well. So that's a long answer to where I was during Dartmouth um, and all the activities. And I guess I should add that during the summers, I went back to Hawaii and I worked for two of the summers inpatient psychiatric unit. And then I also worked in an inpatient psychiatric unit at Dartmouth Hitchcock. So I was very involved in sort of like the end of that line, like what happens when the full crisis occurs. Um, so when I left Dartmouth, I knew I wanted to go into psychology. I had been doing this kind of work the whole time, but I, I was still very pensive about what exactly, what was going to be my focus and how was I going to put all that together? Can I interrupt and just ask, when you came to Dartmouth, did you know already that this was a kind of career path for you, given just your innate empathy and, and where your interests lay? I did, for the most part, know that I was interested in something related to psychology. There were some other areas that I was sort of dabbling and checking out, but for the most part, this had always been a clear interest of mine. So I knew I was going to integrate it in some way or another. Yeah. So then did you jump directly to grad school? No, I actually, after Dartmouth, I went to Yale and I worked at the Child Study Center there. And it was great because there I worked on a few projects as well as got some um, public policy training and child development. And so it kind of started to hone in my interest in, because I knew I liked research and I wanted to contribute to the science and the understanding of all of these things, but I also really wanted to have an impact. I wanted action. I didn't want to just be in a research lab. I had taken those psychology classes and I'd been one of the little undergraduates who was uh, in the subject mm -hmm. pool and did an experiment and didn't know what was the result and did I do it right or not right? I still remember some of those experiments. Like, what did, what did you think of me? What happened here? Even though I appreciate that scientific research, I wanted science that also had action and impact on policy, on communities, on individuals. So the project that I worked on there that really impacted me was a partnership with the police department. And it was a program that brought clinicians together with police officers 
to uh, respond differently, be more aware when children are at the scene of a crime and not even just in the house, but maybe even on the sidewalk who may witness something that is pretty terrifying and being more responsive to children's needs during that important developmental time period. So I loved it because as much as it was coming from Yale and being sort of like having this clout in academia and science, it was also literally on the streets. And we were literally trying to have a positive impact on children and families in the community. That really speaks to what you were saying of like not just doing the interesting thing, but having the impact. And as you did earlier, giving people voice and making people seen. So that I'm sure is the through line that connects through all the rest of your training. So take us kind of hopping from one to another, the training that you received. Yeah. So after Yale, that's when I started graduate school. And the first stop was at Harvard. And I actually found a very unique program that I truly just love to this day. It was called risk and prevention, but really the focus was on prevention. And I loved that because all of the things that I had done so far had been so focused on what happens when things go wrong and how do we react? So very much a disease model, like there, somebody has a disease, now let's respond to it. How do we treat it? And I loved this idea of how do we actually prevent it from happening at all? We could just help people in such a more profound, unimaginable way um, if we prevent these negative things from happening to begin with. So I really loved that focus. And then the other thing that I started focusing on was the study of resilience. So instead of just looking at people who are suffering from mental health disorders, how do we look at those who have every checkbox of risk that you could imagine? They've gone through all sorts of adversity and trauma, but they're doing okay. So what happened? Let's let's learn from that group and figure out what are the factors that can help people because some of those stories I think we're all drawn to, right? Mm-hmm. When we hear that hero's story of somebody who overcomes the kinds of challenges that are put in their way. So let's actually hone into that and see what we can do to help support each other because we all really face some degree of challenge and obstacle and adversity in our lives. Right. Even if it's not just born of our own kind of individual context, like societally, this last year, case in point, has really challenged us in many ways. And we've needed to tap into different types of resilience. So that is a track within clinical psychology that you're working on or not? No. So that was in the graduate school of education at Harvard. And I worked with a clinical psychologist. My mentor was a clinical psychologist. And I worked at McLean Hospital, which is a really famous psychiatric hospital. So I knew that I still wanted to go down that route and get the doctorate in clinical psychology. But I did struggle with that. It was a competitive program and wonderful, you know, an honor, privilege, to be there. I got, I I went across the river to Boston University to their clinical program at the time. Harvard didn't have a clinical program, but now they do. 
you know, it was wonderful to be there and I wanted the training and the degree, but I, I struggled with the fact that I, I had to swing all the way back again to everybody talking about psychopathology and very much uh, reactionary instead of preventative oriented. So I just held on to my interests and I held on to the fact that I wanted to be strength based and resilience focused. And I also knew that the community that I really wanted to work with next was refugees. At the time, no one in my program was doing that work, but I knew that that was a huge community. I mean, it's now over 79 million people who are forcibly displaced around the globe. And so I thought, how, how is no one focused on this? This is a vast enormous number. And these are people who did nothing except exist in a context that didn't allow them to stay for whatever reason related to instability of the context. And more and more, we're facing that not just because of war and armed conflict and persecution, but also climate Mm -hmm. uh, climate change related disasters are causing some of the forced displacement around the globe today. So for lots of reasons, many innocent people are being forced from where they live and are seeking refuge somewhere else. And they experience so much adversity in that context of having to leave. And then in the flight when they're not knowing where they're going to end up. And then finally finding, hopefully, and not all, but some who are lucky enough to find a new place still face extreme adversities and often are rejected or not included in the context uh, or there's lots of racism and just a sense that people don't want them. And so it's just an uphill battle. And so I wanted to put some of my efforts into research and action with refugee communities who were resettling in the U.S., so that's what I did next. Yeah. And Miriam, was that was the motivation for that strictly like I'm see I see this gigantic number out there around the world and it fits so well with that again, the giving people voice, the being seen, the integrating community. Or did you have kind of personal ties to that community? Or I know it's not one big community, but you know, people in that situation. Yeah, absolutely. My own personal background was having to flee with my family in the context of armed conflict. I lived in four countries, three languages, and seven schools in seven years growing up. So so I knew that experience quite personally. And so I was very aware from having had that experience in my own childhood of exile, of being forcibly displaced, of never being able to go back and having to figure out how to be in a new home and craving that sense of belonging and welcome and how to create that community. Um, and so I, I knew that. And it also just taught taught me because this was in my childhood and it taught me at a very young age how observant children are and how important children's perspectives are. And that was just something that was so obvious to me because I myself had <laughs> experienced all this and was very well aware of what I had experienced. And so I think a lot of people put less on what they expect that children are experiencing and witnessing. So I was very aware of that piece, that children's voices mattered and their empowerment matters. And then the other piece that I 
learned from those experiences was just that we have so much more in common across countries and cultures and languages than we have different. But so many people are unaware of that or don't want to hear that or see that. And they're so worried about drawing a border around their little territory and saying, you know, you go over there and I'll stay over here or, you know, whatever it is. I still have the idealistic perspective that we can all really unite, like that potential is there. Um, and yet I'm also really aware of all the obstacles. Right, right. So when you threw yourself into kind of this area of work, research, was it with a lens? You said no one was really doing this at the time. And so were you able to say, well, not only is no one doing this, but I want to do the from a child perspective, or did you really need to do a full kind of family perspective or community perspective-based research paradigm? Yeah, that's a great question. Yeah, so nobody in my program was doing it. So I was looking for mentors. I was looking outside my program to try to figure out, okay, where can I find someone doing this work? I mean, somebody was doing this work, right? There's a lot of resettlement agencies. There's some here and there, there there were some rumblings. And I actually found some challenges that I faced, you know, around trying to seek out mentorship and going to some senior people. And in particular, you know, I went to somebody who's an award-winning psychologist who, you know, is well-lauded and will probably continue to win awards. And I had this conversation of sort of thinking, oh, this is going to be somebody who will mentor me. And he ended up being very small-minded and asking me pretty insulting questions about kind of questioning how how it was possible that my, my parents, my family had even basically kind of allowed me to leave the house and gotten an education. And this is somebody who had my CV in front of him that said I'd gone to Dartmouth, that said I went to Harvard, that said I worked at Yale, that said I was a graduate student at Boston University. And he was just like, so how is it that, you know, and I was shocked. And, you know, I handled that conversation. He offered me to work together. (laughs) And I politely uh, afterwards declined. And yeah, Uh, But from that and a few other kinds of incidents like that, I realized that the people who were doing some of the work were not necessarily, they didn't have the perspective, maybe the personal perspective. You know, they were relying on stereotypes or, you know, sometimes people in this line of work are also out to save others, Mm -hmm. like the person who goes to another country to save those people who live over there. And there was a little bit of that kind of martyr type of person. And so I just kept seeing over and over that there, there, I was like, okay, I just need to pursue this myself because it's important to have somebody who gets <laughs> something from the community. But I also had that humility and of realizing that I don't get what, you know, I've had also many privileges that and and differences from another community, every refugee community, every immigrant community is different. So what I realized there was the importance of partnership. And so the rest of my work has really since that time, tried to work directly with community members, and other stakeholders in part in full partnership. And so I used a methodology called community-based participatory research, where the ideal goal is that you're really 
pursuing research and action together in an equal manner rather than coming in kind of from the ivory tower and and being the expert really the people themselves yeah exactly the people themselves are the expert of their own lives yeah yeah that is just an astounding story about barriers and people that you meet that you just hope would have been thinking differently, right? But you persisted and um, you've been doing great work in that realm. So talk to me about your academic career, where you still feel as though you are doing the thought research and leadership and where you're seeing that impact and how, how you can marry those two things in academia, at least from your perspective. Yeah. Um, after I finished graduate school, I came out to California. I left the East Coast finally <laughs> after being there. Just just letters away. Finally figuring out how to stay warm through a whole winter. <laughs> I was like, okay, check. Now I moved to California. So I've been at, in Santa Barbara at UC Santa Barbara for quite a while, since 2007 now. And I've been able to really pursue that same kind of uh, research methodology with the communities here and then in, also in other places when I partner with other investigators on projects. And, you know, it's a challenge, but I feel like part of my role now is to continue to do that work involve communities in that work because it empowers them. It creates better research, I think, better science, better knowledge, and better practice because we can really inform policy and practice from the needs of the community and from their perspectives. And I've also, you know, I mentioned children's perspectives. I've also really tried to find ways to involve youth in that leadership process. And I really truly believe in the fact that young people have an important perspective to share and really want their voices to be heard. It's a challenge because academia has its traditions and ways and expectations of doing things. So I feel like now as a professor, you know, I've made it down the chain to full professor. <laughs> you know, I'm I can't believe I'm considered senior. So I feel like here I am in this privileged role to teach the next generation and to give these methodologies not only validation that this is okay to do, but actually perhaps even question, isn't this the most responsible, most ethical way to do things? And if you're not doing it, we should be asking you why you're not. Mm. And that's great because not only do you have that mentorship role within academia and preparing kind of, as you say, the next leaders of the science, um, but you're creating leaders of on-the-ground science, mentoring the youth that are part of these communities, which I think is great because not everybody is going to go through the umpteen years of schooling that you have, but you could really, you are making a difference in that leadership voice that is growing in these communities. So... I think that it seems like it's a great balance right now. Um, I know, though, from looking at some of your other research, there are other shoots of this and media being one of them. Talk to me about how varied you've been able to be in your career as well. Yeah, I mean, I I have a million things that I'm interested in, but they all kind of harmonize around resilience and strength-based 
perspectives and how to help support young people in their life trajectories. You know, most recently I've become involved in our project where we're working towards giving voice to youth activists. And so you can see that there's that overlap in the topic, but doing it more through media, right? Like that's the way that information is passed most readily these days. And so I think It also just brings into question our methodologies of how we disseminate information and knowledge and make social change and impact. So some of it can be through science, but it's also can be exciting and maybe even faster at times to do it in the way in the places where young people are listening and can can get inspired from each other's stories and each other's work. So I can hear the throngs now of our classmates and other listeners who have perhaps young people in their own lives who may feel like dinner table activists, like, mom, I'm going to tell you why I need more screen time. Um, so what, what from your very academic and learned position, I also know you're a mother, might <laughs> you be able to share about resilience and how to help young people through their trajectories that just kind of everyday parents might need to learn from you. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's a big area for me now is just um, working in a preventative lens with parents, because I think parents are the ones who, you know, and, and starting right out when children are babies, you know, what can we do for parents that helps them set that trajectory for their children and to be aware of adversities and how they impact child development and brain development. And then also some of the ways in which we can do better as parents in terms of just attending to our own regulation or dysregulation. Mm -hmm. So part of that is, you know, and especially during this past year, people's stress levels have been through the roof and mental health is, you know, something that it cuts across social class and race, and it affects everyone, if not yourself, first or second degrees away, right, of anxiety and depression. And children are experiencing it, adolescents, college students. I mean, we had that in our day, but it feels like on our campuses that the level, the numbers of students who are seeking out mental health counseling in co- on college campuses is just through the roof. I mean, it's really a public health crisis. So the first thing is always, and I would recommend to parents and all of us, is to try to take care of our own mental health and to prioritize it. It's something that I think we oftentimes just don't put as a priority. We're all busy. And so it feels like I have to, I have all these other things I have to take care of. But really, if we're not taking care of that or putting in the time to maybe even deal with some of our past patterns, you know, there's a place for therapy. There's lots of ways to do therapy. You don't have to go to a psychologist. There's other ways to kind of process your past and try to think about uh, intergenerational patterns that you might be repeating and and have a chance to kind of um, be reflective and grow. And also just to take care of ourselves, especially when things are stressful around us because our children are watching and they're taking all of that in and responding to that. And then the second big thing, I won't give too many tips, general tips, but the second big thing is really to nurture our social support 
systems. You know, there's no time like pandemic to really go back and reflect on who who do I have in my social circle, who stayed in my social mm-hmm. circle during this time, and what did I learn about what my needs are and where I need to maybe put some more time into nurturing these relationships and making sure that those are there for me as well as for my children. Or even maybe um, letting go of ones that aren't as healthy, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. Exactly. Yeah. So, you know, making sure that social support network is there, it's over and over again, just a key factor to people's kind of contentment and well-being over time. The truth is we'll probably face more natural disasters, pandemics, other kinds of community things that none of us can really control because it's happening in the environment around us. So the more prepared we are with that, the better. And it's always good to practice um, mindfulness, mindful parenting and exercise, you know, just healthy ways of being in the world and teaching our children compassion uh, and connection. Yeah. So Miriam, when I kind of think back to all those things that you said you were in college, the person looking at our context and seeing how can I make this community stronger and more comfortable for people? How do I give people a voice, make sure they're seen? You have continued to do that over and over and over. So when you think back to that, Miriam, do you see the same person or what didn't she know that you now know? Hmm. I mean, my my quick response is I do see the same person. And I think I've worked really hard, not hard, but intent. I've been very intentional about not getting jaded because through my line of work, I'm exposed over and over again to some of the most difficult experiences and stories and the harsher sides of things that people have gone through. When, when you hear somebody who's gone through something extremely traumatic. And it's easy to fall into despair because you find out about some of the cruelest things that happen in the world. And there are some days where you think animals are so much nicer than people. (laughs) (laughs) Not all animals, I guess, but at least puppies. (laughs) Kittens. Um, But I do think that I have been intentional about holding on to that idealism and holding on to that feeling that I had when I when I got to Dartmouth and I saw all the people in our class who had such promise and potential and my view was just like how how do you get that promise and potential how do you support that how do we support that not just now for ourselves but how do we create a world in which we're supporting each other on those paths. So in in many ways, I feel like that's that's something I've carried with me. Yeah. Well, we are delighted that you are among our number and have been looking out for us, whether we knew it or not, along this way. And we'll just be so pleased to see how you take this and into which communities you take this great empathy and care. And so I want just to thank you for sharing your story with us and for being you. Thank you so much, Leslie. I'm so excited to be part of this and can't wait to hear all the rest of the stories everybody has. 
That was Miriam Kia Keating, a professor at the University of California, Santa Barbara, in its School of Education's Department of Counseling, Clinical, and School Psychology. Her scholarship and activism centers around resilience and empowers individuals, families, schools, and communities through participatory action and human-centered design. She's also a licensed clinical psychologist and a mom of two. As Miriam suggests that we all prioritize our mental health and me time, might I suggest listening to some back episodes of Roads Taken? Check out our full catalog at roadstakenshow.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Hopefully you'll realize we've all had some ups and downs on the roads getting to where we are. And if you're interested in sharing your story, please reach out so that we can feature you with me, Leslie Jennings Rowley, on an upcoming episode of Roads Taken. Roads Taken.